That's exciting. Turn with me to Nehemiah chapter 13, if you would. Uh, Nehemiah chapter 13, getting towards the end of the book. I believe this week and next week will be the last uh, in the series of Nehemiah 13, Forward by Faith. And uh, this week, Forward by Faith with Courage. You know, as humans, most of us admire other humans who live courageously. Uh, we enjoy, for the most part, we enjoy watching uh, you know, movies and, and things like that where a hero, you know, reveals himself or herself and does heroic and courageous acts. Uh, I remember as a, as a kid, uh, I enjoyed, and this is kind of a silly hero movie, but anybody remember Hogan's Heroes? Okay, so I watched Hogan's Heroes, and uh, we had like this, this wooden uh, fort type thing in the back, and at some point, I don't even know where my dad got it or who gave it to us, but there was this big wooden box that had a hinged lid and so I put that box underneath the fort and I would jump in there and, and, and pretend like I was you know Hogan and his his clan coming out of the tunnel and I just wanted to be you know like them and uh, it's exciting to think about you know the, the courage and the, the heroes and of course you have Spider-Man you have uh, um, Captain America and Superman you've got these fictitious characters that Many of us remember from early childhood and uh, haven't gone away. I mean, they're still around. They're still stories. Kids still enjoy wearing Spider-Man stuff and Superman capes. But, you know, outside of that, there are real-life men and women who have shown much courage. One of the, as I was studying for this, one of the first uh, people that I thought of was Winston Churchill. He came into power in the United Kingdom during the time of the World War. Second World War, and uh, certainly uh, the United Kingdom needed a courageous leader. Some of the quotes that he is famous for saying is, Never, never, never give up. He also said, Success is not final, failure is not fatal. It is the courage to continue that counts. Courage is, in the Merriam Webster dictionary, is defined as mental or moral strength to venture, persevere, and withstand danger, fear, or difficulty. Churchill also said, Courage is rightly esteemed the first of human qualities because it has been said, it is the quality which guarantees all others. In America, since September 11th of 2001, we often remember and think back about the courage that was displayed even by the first responders who ran into the World Trade Centers when everybody else was trying to get out. We think of those who were on the Flight 93, United Flight 93, and could have, uh, you know, the terrorists could have crashed that plane into the Capitol or into the White House, but there, was, there were courageous, unarmed civilians who didn't allow that to happen. Navy SEALs are another group of what we often think of as courageous men and women. The Army Rangers, uh, even Christian relief workers, as I was thinking back about this, it's hard to believe it's been almost uh, eight years, really, that have passed since Dr. Kent Brantley and Nancy Wrightbull uh, were serving as relief workers in Africa, and they both uh, got Ebola. Nobody knew if they were going to survive. Many were not surviving at the time, and of course they were flown to Emory University and 2014, God miraculously and helped them to survive, and they can still tell about God's grace, but they risked with great courage their own lives to serve many others. We think of even a friend of ours, Matt Harden, who we visited in India, and 
We went to some remote parts of India to help train national pastors, but apart from us, he would go even to further areas that were even more under persecution, religious persecution in the northern part of, of India. Matt Harden showed great courage. So the list could go on and on, and you're probably thinking of some even in your own uh, head of people who have shown courage, people who have shown in the face of danger, fear, or difficulty, they've shown great courage. But maybe Nehemiah isn't the first to come to mind, but we're going to see in Nehemiah chapter 13 that Nehemiah uh, displayed and revealed much courage in the latter part of his life. Turn with me again then to Nehemiah chapter 13. Let's read verses 1 through 3. And I pray that as we read through this passage, it won't be just a study of a Bible character. It won't just be of like, yeah, Nehemiah was great, you know, good for him. But that we, we will be challenged and reminded that as followers of Jesus Christ, all of us will face opportunities to show great courage in the culture in which we live. Um, every single one of us. We'll have opportunities, whether it be in a school classroom or maybe around the lunch table at work or maybe in a neighborhood get-together or maybe just talking with someone on a campus or out in the city. We will have uh, the opportunities to show great courage for Jesus Christ. So I hope that as we see Nehemiah, we'll not only uh, learn and and be excited about his example, but then uh, choose to follow that as well. Look with me in Nehemiah chapter 13 and verse 1. On that day they read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people, and in it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God. For they did not meet the people of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. Yet our God turned the curse into a blessing. As soon as the people heard the law, they separated from Israel all those of foreign descent. You know, before anything else, let's not forget that the very first part of this chapter brings the people back to uh, the law, to God's, God's guidelines. We're going to see here in a few minutes that Nehemiah has been absent. Some think as, as long as 10 to 12 years, but he's been absent for some time. And the people of Israel, those that have returned to Jerusalem, many of them have fallen far away from what we've just seen in chapters 10, 11, and 12 of great revival. And so now they're bring, Nehemiah is bringing them back to God's law. And they're being reminded of ways that they have, have uh, been contrary to God's guidelines. But first I want to see Nehemiah has the courage to confront impure relationships. He has the courage to, to confront impure relationships. First of all, we see impure marriage relationships. And this is a question, in the first couple of verses here, this is a question of religion and not race. When we first read this, it's like, wow, no, no Moabite, no Ammonite can come into the assembly of God. But this is more of a question of religion than it is race. Now, you'll be reminded in Nehemiah chapter 10 and verse 30, I'll read it for you. They had committed to not intermarry with the nations around them who served false gods and who were not reverent to God Jehovah. Nehemiah 10.30 says, We will not give our daughters to the people of the land or take their daughters for our sons. But in the absence of Nehemiah, a great spiritual leader, many unfortunately had fallen away and had chosen to do exactly what they had promised not to do. Ruth reminds us, Ruth chapter 1, verses 4 through 16, we won't read the whole passage, but that passage reminds us this is not about race. You may be reminded that uh, Naomi had 
uh, gone into um, the Moab you know, land looking for food and a better life for a time being. But then, you know, she heard uh, her sons, two sons had died. So uh, Ruth and Orpah were now, you know, widows. Ruth is about to, uh, or or Naomi rather, is about to return. And she tells her two daughter-in-laws, listen, you know, stay stay in your land and and don't follow me. And, And after, you know, some convincing, Orpah, you know, does. And she kisses Naomi and then stays behind. But then I think someone's, okay, somebody just opened the door. Thanks. Uh, but then Ruth says, no, I will go with you. And in fact, we see in Ruth chapter 1 and verse 15, it says, and she said, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. That's important. See, your people, you know, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law, Naomi says to Ruth. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. And then notice and listen to this. Your people shall be my people, but most importantly, and your God, my God. So although Ruth was certainly a Moabite woman, Ruth followed and made it very clear here, no, I'm not going back. In fact, one of the reasons I'm not going back, Naomi, is because I want to follow your God. And what's even cooler than just the fact that she follows Naomi is that Ruth in the Gospel of Matthew is listed as part of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. So let's, you know, let's not get confused here in the first couple of verses of, of Nehemiah 13. This is not about race. This is about those who, you know, are you going to serve God Almighty or not? And the Moabites and Ammonites had historically not done so. In fact, they had hired you know, Balaam as a prophet to curse Israel. They had not welcomed you know, Israel in through their land and the Jews through their land. And so as they intermarry, Nehemiah and, the, and, the, and God's Moses' law says, you need to separate. The intermarriage with those who are serving other gods is not according to God's will. We also see in Ezra 6, 19 through 21. So Ezra is right before Nehemiah, also the time of the, of the return, the building of the temple and the rebuilding of the walls. But Ezra 6, verse 19 says, On the 14th day of the first month, the return exiles kept the Passover. For the priests and the Levites had purified themselves together. All of them were clean. So they slaughtered the Passover lamb for all the return exiles, for their fellow priests and for themselves. Then Ezra 6.21 says, It was eaten by the people of Israel who had returned from exile, and also by everyone who had joined them and separated himself from the uncleanness of the peoples of the land to worship the Lord, the God of Israel. Amen? That's exciting. That even in the time of the Old Testament, even in the time of the chosen nation of Israel, There were opportunities for Ruth and others, even as we see in in Ezra chapter 6, to say, no, you know, we don't want to serve the gods of our nations, of our lands. We want to serve God, Jehovah, the God of Israel. This was also a question of loyalty and not just ability. Jump ahead in Nehemiah chapter 13, verses 23 through 27. Nehemiah is certainly very saddened at the state, the spiritual state of the people that he has returned to after being uh, back in uh, Babylon in the kingdom of Persia. It says, In those days, Nehemiah 13, 23, In those days I saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. 
And half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod, and they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. Now keep that in mind. That's important because the law of, of God was written in Hebrew. So now these children, of the, of, you know, because of the intermarriage, many of these children were growing up not even knowing the Hebrew language, so therefore not even understanding God's law. It goes on in verse 25. And I confronted them, courageous action here. Nehemiah says, and I confronted them and cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair. And I made them take an oath in the name of God saying, you shall not give your daughter to their sons or take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. But notice verse 26. This is where it becomes very clear. This is so much more a question about loyalty than someone's ability, intelligence, uh, or, or even passion that they may have, and enthusiasm. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin on account of such women? Among the many nations, there was no king like him, and he was beloved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, foreign women made even him to sin. Shall we then listen to you and do all this great evil and act treacherously against our God by marrying foreign women? Now, once again, this is not, a, a, this is not primarily about, you know, Israel, you should not marry anyone who's not been born of Israel. No, this is a, a religious thing here, and religious in the sense of who is their God? Who is that lady's God, Jehovah? So this is not about race. It's about religion. And it's not even about the ability of a person. We see Solomon here was a very, very talented and wise man. Unfortunately, oftentimes he didn't practice the wisdom that he knew in his head. You see the book of Ecclesiastes. How he you know, pursues everything under the sun. And then in the end he says, basically the conclusion is this. All is vanity, but fear God. He learned and certainly there were many, many consequences of his sins. His dad, King David, unfortunately also a warrior, a man after God's own heart in many ways, but allowed temptation with Bathsheba to uh, choose sin and, and then even uh, be involved in the, in the murder of an innocent man. And all of this, because King David, did he have the ability? Absolutely. Was he powerful? Sure, he was king of Israel. But yet, the loyalty... Sometimes he allowed to waver instead of to his God many times, and sometimes it was to himself. King David, King Solomon, think of Samson. Samson was a very strong man, obviously. He had many talents, but yet, once again, allowed the temptation with women to divert his loyalty. It was so sad to, to hear and read not long ago that one of the at least academically, one of the greatest apologists of our times, Ravi Zacharias, was not the man that he often portrayed himself to be. He was brilliant. And he defended the truths, God's truths, for many, many years. But unfortunately, he hid in his secret life sexual misconduct over and over and over again, and it became very clear after his death. And one reason I, I don't say his name to, to just you know, try to make us look better or just to try to, uh, to, to shame someone, but I say his name because the Bible says names of people who've made mistakes, and we should learn from mistakes like this. 
At one time, there were hundreds of people employed by their ministry. But yet he justified, and, and, and later testimony was given, ladies that he you know, would manipulate and would offer spiritual help and then would coerce into sexual activity. He would say, well, I deserve this because of all that I do for God in my public ministry. That is absolutely false. It doesn't matter the ability. It doesn't matter the, you know, how smart you are. It doesn't matter how, how good you sing, how awesome you preach, how, how many, many things you can do for God's service. Loyalty to God in and out of the house of God is super important. And Nehemiah says here, listen, be careful. Learn from Solomon. Learn from a man who had become king of Israel. Learn from someone who, of all his wisdom, nevertheless, it says, fell and chose sin. I want to challenge all of you. Listen, we are, every single one of us is so close we can become so close to choosing sin ourselves. Sometimes we think, no, no, I would never do that. Oh, really? You just, just stay out of God's word for a while. Stay away from God's people for a while. Don't follow the Lord for a while. And it would be very, very easy to begin to justify in your mind just a little bit more, just a little bit more, just a little bit more. And it may not be sexual sense for you. It may be something totally different. But don't think that you, because of your ability, stand above May this serve as a warning and encouragement that God would keep us humble and passionate about an intimate relationship with him. Not just do's and don'ts, not just tasks that we do, but God, I want to follow you. I want to be a follower of Jesus Christ. I don't want to just be a Christian in name. I don't want to just be a One Hope member in name, but I want to be a follower of you. I want you to be my shepherd in all of my steps, in secret, in public, that I may be faithful to you. It takes courage to do exactly that. We see that also it's, not, it's a question of legacy and not lust. A question of legacy and not lust. Turn with me to Malachi chapter 2, verses 11 through 16. It's interesting that during this time period, as Nehemiah served as governor for 12 years, but then he had promised King Artaxerxes, he had promised um, back in Nehemiah chapter 2, we see that he had promised to go back at some point to leave Jerusalem. King Artaxerxes in Nehemiah chapter 2 even you know, asked him, well, how long will you, will you be gone? And it says that after Nehemiah had given him a time that King Artaxerxes blessed you know, Nehemiah's departure to go to Jerusalem and serve, and he was there for 12 years, and then he left for a while. We don't know exactly how long. But during that time period, as the Israelites begin to rebel again and begin to fall away, Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament, a prophet, Malachi served during that time period. So the warnings and the prophecies that we see are, are dealing with this group of people during Nehemiah's absence. So notice with me in Malachi chapter 2, verses 11 through 16, what Malachi warns them about regarding even their marriages. Judah has been faithless. An abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and, he, and has married the daughter, notice, of a foreign God. Again, the, the attention is brought back, you know, who is, who is the person's God? May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendants, descendants of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. In this second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not 
Malachi answers. He says, because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. Many of you were there at, uh, at, the, at Barn South, August 5th. Did I get the date right? August 5th, okay, as Rachel and Logan, you know, stood in the front and they said their vows. But more important than my presence there that day as I officiated and more important than your presence there that day was God was witness of the vows that those two young people made on that day. And I pray that Logan and Rachel will be faithful to each other for the rest of their life. And I pray that every single one of us who are also married would take this at heart and say, God, help me to be faithful to the wife of my youth. This is a question about legacy. It's not about passionate emotions and, well, I just don't feel the love anymore. Well, um, obedience still matters. God's plan still matters. And not only that, one of the questions was that Malachi even answered, and what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. God wants as a result of our marriages and faithfulness in marriage Uh, Children who grow up and understand God is worth serving. God is worth facing even difficulties in marriage to have a lasting legacy for his glory. A couple things that I hope you'll take away from this. How you end is even more important than how you begin. How you end is more important than how you begin. I think I've given this example before, but I enjoyed running track. The mile race was my, was my best race. It wasn't always the most enjoyable race because it's kind of grueling, you know, four laps around. But I, I, I did enjoy the race, but I knew very well that if I, if I started off in a sprint, I better be careful because I probably would not be able to keep it up for four laps around the track. I had to pace myself. And during practice, I had to practice, okay, well, how fast can I run? How fast can I start? And then keep that pace the whole way. And Christianity is not just coming out with a big bang and doing, you know, some, some real public things and some real, you know, cool and, and mighty Christian acts of service. But it is a journey of faithfulness to God Almighty that we may leave a legacy for his glory and to influence others for Jesus Christ. How you end is even more important than how you begin. But then also the ripple effects of your sins will be far greater than you ever imagined. The ripple effects of your sins will be far greater than you ever imagined. How did the Moabite and Ammonite nations begin? Well, through sins of Lot and his wicked daughters. Lot and, you know, had two daughters, and it's in Genesis 19, 30 through 38. We won't read the passage, but Lot's daughters decided that they were going to have sexual relations with their own father because they didn't have husbands and they wanted, they wanted children. So they had a plot, and we're going to help. We're going to, you know, get dad drunk. And then each one of us, one night, one's going to, you know, lie with him, have sexual relations. The next night, the other's going to do the same. And of those incestuous relationships, Moab... 
and Benami were born, the Moabites and the Ammonites. I doubt Lot really thought a whole lot as he continued to drink and drink another one and drink another one until he got drunk. I doubt he really thought about how far that might affect, even till this day of Nehemiah, where they have to separate because they're intermarrying with the Ammonites and the Moabites who serve false gods. The ripple effect of Lot's sin in yours and mine will be far greater than you can ever imagine. You know, we think about, in our day and age, many are claimed to be followers of Christ, yet they've convinced themselves, as we look here at you know, Nehemiah's courage to confront impure relationships, many in our day have convinced themselves, no, I can be a follower of Christ, but don't talk about my relationships. That's my business. God's word, his law, you know, I can, I can follow Christ in a lot of ways, but in my, in my romance and in my personal relationships, well, that's my business, and I can do just as I please and then just follow Christ and everything else. It doesn't work that way. So we need to be courageous, one, to confront ourselves with God's word as we're thinking about what kind of relationships are we involved in, but also courageous and loving and faithful as we confront others and help guide others. Listen, don't do that. Follow God's word. His is the best plan. Don't confuse yourself. Don't, don't convince yourself. Otherwise, God's plan is the best. Historically, time and time again, it's proven. And of course, we know that God is just and right. But not only did Nehemiah confront impure marriage relationships, but he also confronted improper religious relationships. Notice Nehemiah 13 in verse 4. Now before this, it's not exactly clear you know, what time frame that is mentioning, but uh, it's probably, I, I think Nehemiah is in, you know, referring to before he returned to Jerusalem. Now before this, Eliashib the priest, who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God, and notice this, and who is related to Tobiah, prepared for Tobiah a large chamber where they had previously put the grain offering, the frankincense, the vessels, and the tithes of grain, wine, and oil, which were given by commandments to the Levites, singers and gatekeepers, and the contributions for the priests. While this was taking place, I was not in Jerusalem, for in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I went to the king. So this is where we see Nehemiah say, hey, I've been gone for a while. Now, why did, you know, why did he say uh, Artaxerxes king of Babylon? Artaxerxes was king of Persia. So we're not exactly sure. It could be that, uh, that maybe the king was, his, his court perhaps was in the, in the area of Babylon at that point. Maybe that was why um, he said Artaxerxes king of Babylon. But it goes on and says, And after some time I asked leave of the king and came to Jerusalem, and I... I then discovered the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah, preparing for him a chamber in the courts of the house of God. And I was very angry, and I threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. Then I gave orders, and they cleansed the chambers, and I brought back their vessels of the house of God with the grain offering and the frankincense. I want you to notice here that an imbalanced love for family, an imbalanced love for family motivated Eliashib's compromising actions. So because he loved his family in an imbalanced way, he loved them even more than God, even though he was priest, it 
motivated him to act in a compromising way. All the way back in Nehemiah chapter 2, we see Nehemiah act very decisively with Tobiah. He didn't mess around. He wasn't you know, beating around the bush. In Nehemiah chapter 2, verses 19 and 20, it says, But when Samballot the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite, it's interesting, servant and Geshem the Arab heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us and said, What is this thing that you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Then I, Nehemiah, replied to them, the God of heaven will make us prosper, and we, his servants, will arise and build, but you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. Nehemiah is not saying, hey, can we, can we compromise a little bit here? You know, maybe if we don't complete the whole wall, you know, will you give us a little bit of leeway? Will you at least let us do half the wall? You know, what if we do the whole wall, but we give you kind of a, a portion of the wall that, you know, kind of, kind of be yours? No, he didn't do any of that. He says, this is what God has called us to do. This is exactly what we're going to do. And you know what? You, do, you have no part of it because you're against God and what he's called us to do. So there's a huge contrast here between Nehemiah, the spiritual leader, and Eliashib, the high priest. His, his, motiva- his love for family motivated him to live in a compromising way. We see in Matthew chapter 10, verse 34 through 39, Christ gives warning of false priorities here in placing our family and relatives even above God. In Matthew chapter 10, verse 34, it says, Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Notice this in verse 37. Whoever loves father or mother more than me. That is a very key phrase. Because oftentimes we would say, yeah, I love Christ. I love Jesus Christ. Do I love my family? Yeah, I love my family. But sometimes in, in practicality, we live out, no, but, you know, actually, I, yeah, I do love Christ, but boy, that's my son. That's my daughter. That's my wife. That's my husband. That's my grandbabies. So, Sometimes we love them more than we do God. And Jesus says, he says here in Matthew chapter 10, whoever loves father, verse 37, or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake We'll find it. Because we see Eliashib had, you know, was a relative of Tobiah, instead of being decisive as Nehemiah and saying, you know, Tobiah, you don't have any part in this. No, he prepared a chamber, he prepared an apartment inside the temple for an enemy of God. And sometimes we see even churches who, who say a lot about Christ and even do a lot of good things, but we see churches and leaders who are, who are kind of making apartments for the enemy inside the church. May we be careful, church family, to understand that our love for God should be our love for fam- above love for family, should be above our love for close friends, above our love for maybe an employer. Well, I may lose my job if I don't cheat, if I don't do this, okay? Well, who are you going to choose? What's your priority? We see here that Eliashib 
certainly chose the wrong thing. Secondly, we see an intimate love for God motivated Nehemiah's courageous actions. His love for God, his intimate love for God motivated his courageous actions. You know, the Ammonites and the Moabites had refused to show hospitality to Israel when they were going through the land as they were going into the promised land. They'd even hired a false prophet, Balaam, to curse Israel. Tobiah and Sambalat did something very similar. They also hired a false prophet to try to curse and to lead Nehemiah astray. So Nehemiah, as a, as a courageous leader, says, no, you're not going to have any part of building this wall, and you're certainly not, not going to be able to stay in the temple any longer. You're out. Now, interestingly enough, about you know, 400-something years later, Who goes into the temple and also throws people and things out of the temple? Jesus Christ. Well, I'd say it was a pretty good example then Nehemiah had in saying, listen, no compromise here, you're out. You have no place in the house of God. After confronting these improper relationships, though, we also see his courage, Nehemiah's courage to confront priorities. His courage to confront priorities. In Nehemiah chapter 10, verses 35 to 39, we see you know, the, the Jews and the Israelites making some promises of financial obligations. Just in review, let's look and see what they had promised beforehand in Nehemiah 10. Verse 35 says, We obligate ourselves to bring the first fruits of our ground and the first fruits of all fruit of every tree year by year to the house of the Lord, also to bring to the house of our God, to the priests who minister in the house of our God, the firstborn of our sons and of our cattle, as it is written in the law, and the firstborn of our herds and of our flocks, and to bring the first of our dough and our contributions, the fruit of every tree, the wine and the oil to the priests, to the chambers of the house of our God, and to bring to the Levites the tithes from our ground. For it is the Levites who collect the tithes in all our towns where we labor. And the priest, the son of Aaron, shall be with the Levites when the Levites receive the tithes. The Levites shall bring up the tithe of the tithes to the house of our God, to the chambers of the storehouse. For the people of Israel and the sons of Levi shall bring the contribution of grain, wine, and oil to the chambers, where the vessels of the sanctuary are, as well as the priests who minister, and the gatekeepers, and the singers. And then notice this last phrase, we will not neglect the house of our God. Now notice what Nehemiah finds. He confronts financial priorities as he sees in Nehemiah chapter 13 now in verse 10. I also found out that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them so that the Levites and the singers who did the work had fled each to his field. So I confronted the officials in verse 11 and said, Why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together and set them in their stations. Then all Judah brought the tithe of the grain, wine, and oil into the storehouses. And I appointed as treasurers over the storehouses Shilimai, the priest, Zadok, the scribe, and Padiah of the Levites, and as their assistant Hanan, the son of Zachar, son of Mataniah, noticed, for they were considered reliable, faithful, and their duty was to distribute to their brothers. And then Nehemiah prays, as he does several times throughout this passage, Remember me, O my God, concerning this, and do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for his service. Do you notice the ripple effect once again? 
the people of Israel, for whatever reason, maybe, you know, they, they came to a time, I was like, okay, well, um, you know, it's, it's not as convenient for me to give the first fruits anymore. It, it'd be kind of helpful to have the first fruits, you know, for a while. And so they begin to neglect to care for the Levites and therefore uh, also neglecting the priests. And as a ripple effect of that, Nehemiah says the house of God had been forsaken. The Levites are going back into the fields to try to work for themselves and provide for themselves and therefore not able to do the religious duties and tasks that God had called them to, the ripple effect. Malachi, once again, the prophet who served during this time in Malachi chapter 3 and verse 8, has some pretty harsh questions. In fact, it's a passage that, you know, most of us pastors don't look at and go, boy, I just can't wait to preach this one. But Malachi says in chapter 3 and verse 8, will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions, Malachi answers. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need, I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed for you will be a, a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. Now we've gone through in our stewardship series, you know, what is a tithe? Is that still in the New Testament? And just in quick summary, we we saw, I believe in scripture, that the tithe is a good basis. However, in the New Testament, grace giving and abundant giving is even more, there's, there's more clarity on that. So this is an Old Testament passage, but very clear, Malachi confronts the people and says, you have forsaken what God has called you to do. And because of that, the house of the Lord has been forsaken. And then he, he challenges us, put me to the test. Be faithful with your finances and put me to the test so that I can show you my power. Not only did Nehemiah confront the financial priorities, and I, I'm, I'm going to remind you along with myself, this is a season that we're going into that these things will come uh, to the, 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 this is where the rubber hits the road. Thanksgiving's around the corner, Christmas season, Black Friday. Now it's not Black Friday, it's like Black November. I mean, it's just like all, you know, they just start uh, all these pre, you know, pre-Black Friday sales. Okay, just quit calling it Black Friday. It's just like big sale time. You know, we're going to make a lot of money here. And, and be careful. How are you being a good steward of what God has given you? As we train our children, it's sometimes humorous, but sometimes difficult to Help them to understand, you know, you don't always have to buy immediately what you think you need. And I remember that growing up. I remember specifically to this day, one time I just broke down. I mean, I had a meltdown as I was looking in my closet. It's like, Dad, I need, I need clothes. I need new clothes. It's like, well, son, look at all these clothes you have. Yes, Dad, but those are hand-me-downs from Stephen and Jonathan, and I want my own new clothes. Well, did I really need clothes? No. I never, you know, I never went out of the house without, you know, clothes. I had clothes that I could wear, but I wanted 
those things. And all of a sudden that became a desperate need. Just this last week with one of our young children, I had a similar conversation. I was like, okay, well, let's, let's define need here. Oh, damn it, it's falling apart. And so I, I asked, I said, well, show me. And it was like a backpack. Show me where your backpack's falling apart. Well, you know, I think it's like getting a little, I'm like, I don't see any tears. I don't see any holes. This is still a good backpack. Our finances, oftentimes we, we forget what are the priorities. Even in some of the simple decisions, am I honoring God with my finances? Am I sensitive to the needs of others? Am I ready to be a blessing? Am I ready to, to give? It's going to come into, to a test here in this next season. We also see Nehemiah confronts practical priorities. Notice with me in Nehemiah chapter 10 and verse 31. Again, a promise beforehand, it says in Nehemiah 10, 31, the people said, and if the peoples of the land bring in goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day, and we will forego the crops of the seventh year and the exaction of every debt. So they made it very clear, we are going to honor the Sabbath once again. Well, what did Nehemiah find? Notice with me, Nehemiah 13, verse 15. Once again, after being gone for a while, he comes back and he says, In those days, Nehemiah 13, 15, I saw in Judah people treading wine presses on the Sabbath, bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys, and also wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads, which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them on the day when they sold food. We see that they chose gaining a profit over fulfilling their purpose. They chose gaining a profit over fulfilling their purpose. The nation of Israel had many different commandments and many things that in our day we don't quite understand fully. But God intended for the nation of Israel to be a very clear representation and to to display God Jehovah to all the nations around them. And keeping the Sabbath, honoring the Sabbath was one very such way to be very different. To, to reserve that day, and it was all the way back from creation, to reserve that day to think on God and meditate on Him and to, to show reverence for Him. But yet, they said, no, we're going to do, we're going to go about life, and we're going to gain a profit, even though we're not going to fulfill our purpose. Secondly, I also see they chose convenience over their convictions. They chose convenience over their convictions. Notice with me in verse 16 of Nehemiah 13. Tyrians also who lived in the city brought in fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath to the people of Judah in Jerusalem itself. Then verse 17, then I confronted the nobles of Judah. Once again, Nehemiah is acting courageously here. Then I confronted the nobles of Judah and said to them, what is this evil thing that you're doing, profaning the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers act in this way? And did not our God bring all this disaster on us and on this city? Now you're bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. As soon as it began to grow dark at the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I commanded that the doors should be shut and gave order that they should not be opened until after the Sabbath. And I stationed some of my servants at the gates that no load might be brought in on the Sabbath day. Verse 20, Then the merchants and sellers of all kinds of wares lodged outside Jerusalem once or twice. But I warned them and said to them, 
Why do you lodge outside the wall? If you do so again, I will lay hands on you. From that time on, they did not come on the Sabbath. Then notice verse 22. Then I commanded the Levite that they should purify themselves and come and guard the gates to keep the Sabbath day holy. Remember this also in my favor, Nehemiah says, O my God, and spare me according to the greatness of your steadfast love. Throughout the New Testament, and we see even in Colossians, which I'm going to read here in a second, we are not commanded to honor the Sabbath specifically, but we are commanded to to still honor God with our priorities. The two greatest commandments, in fact, Jesus says, is to love who with all of our heart, soul, and mind? God. And then to love who is ourself? Our neighbor, those who are near. Colossians 2 and verse 16 says, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of things to come. So throughout the Old Testament and the Old Testament law, these were things that helped the Jews to to understand, uh, you know, as they look forward. And then even as we look back, these were a shadow of things to come. But the substance belongs to Christ the new covenant, the new testament. But yet in Matthew chapter 6, verse 24, we see a very applicable principle. No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. But oh, do millions and millions of Christians try to serve God and money. And more often than not, our priorities get get mixed up. But we see in verse 33, But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. You know, we have opportunities all the time to choose our priorities. Is making money more important? You know, as God may lead some of you from time to time to move away from Metro Atlanta, what are, what are some of the big things that you're going to consider that you're going to pray about? Is it just, well, what are the benefits? Is it, is it the most pay? Or will you even consider, hey, is there a good church that I can be a part of where I can serve, where my family can grow in Christ? As you consider even promotions in your work or even extracurricular activities from school and college, will you, will you consider what will this do to my spiritual life and will I be able to serve and will I be able to have the flexibility to, to serve others? James chapter 4 and verses 13 through 17 says, Today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills. Can you just repeat that with me? You know, let's, let's just say, I'm going to say one, two, three, and just say, if the Lord wills. Okay, here we go. One, two, three. If the Lord wills. One more time. One, two, three. If the Lord wills. It's easy to say it's hard to live. As we come up with decisions on, you know, our hobbies, sports, work, relationships, am I going to live out? Yes, I'm going to choose God, and I'm going to love him with all my heart, soul, and might. Will I confuse it with other priorities? As we look back on 
Nehemiah chapter 13, may we be warned but also challenged that quickly we can begin to fall away from the Lord. Quickly we can begin to go back on promises that we've made and uh, ways that we've shown God's work in our life, but we can go back on that. And may we, like Nehemiah, courageously confront in ourselves relationships and priorities, but then also say, God, help me to live the 50-plus one-anothers of the New Testament. Help me to, to make the sacrifice and make, make the priority to, to live out the one-anothers and, to, yes, to love you with all, all my heart, soul, and might as the first and greatest commandment, but then to love my neighbor as myself and to join together with others and pray for one another and, and even confront lovingly one another when needed so that, like Nehemiah, we can act courageously but for God's glory. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes as we pray this morning?